We got a good friend of mine, Tim Egan, coming in here. He's going to talk about grass carp to us. He had to use them because he had no other, no other choice. So, uh, like Troy says, necessity is the mother of creation, right? Or the father of invention, however you want to say it. And Tim Egan used to be a good friend of yours. He's now my best friend. So, <laughs> Tim lays down the law in terms of uh, plant resistance grass carp usage, uh, the whole nine yards. It's really, really good and informative and, and the way that we should utilize all tools in the toolbox for integrated pest management. I love this episode. And he's great because I, I really, he tells the good and the bad of grass carp themselves. So it gives us all right. different points of view. So I think. Hey, and by the way, this episode is brought to you by pwnra.org. Private Waters Natural Resource Association, or the Facebook page, Lake and Pond Management Question Content and Community. Ask your question. We may answer it on the next episode. There you go. That is get, how we get our content here. That's great. I like how you slipped that in. Let's get started. Yeah. Well, we're your hosts, Matt Rail and my Tennessee buddy, Troy Goldsby. Together, we have been working with lakes and ponds for over 40 years. And during that time, we have picked up on a ton of tips and tricks from lake owners and experts from all over the country. So if you want to learn how to catch some smiles from your kids or grandkids on your lake, or learn how to grow some memories on your pond, then come sit with us on Sitting Dockside. Well, welcome to Sitting Dockside. We're doing a part two of our triploid grass carp, I guess, chapter. And uh, we're moving over to a really cool area of central Florida. And we got a, a good friend of mine for a long time, Tim Egan, who'd been at Winter Park for 23 years and the assistant director of Parks and Rec. So, uh, Tim, I'm glad you're here. You manage, you've been managing lakes for how long there in Winter Park? 23 years, right? And then years in Winter Park uh, and uh, about 12 years before that at various other uh, locations in Central Florida. Right. The interesting reason why we're moving to your particular scenario is you, you, you manage substantial amount of bodies of water, but then you ran into, with the, with the invasive uh, species hydrilla, you ran into a couple problems, and go expand on that. Uh, we did. Uh, two main tools we used to control hydrilla in Central Florida for a very long time were uh, sonar, the active ingredient was fluoridone, the trade name was sonar. Uh, the other one was uh, endothol in various formulations, uh, aquathol, aquathol K, super K, and uh, uh, hydrothol. Mm -hmm. uh, by using these products, uh, alternately, we were able to control hydrilla in a manner that led me to actually say hydrilla control is easy to several of my residents over the years. <laughs> Sure. Uh, when uh, I heard that there was uh, resistance problems cropping up related to sonar, uh, I was got a little concerned, but we weren't seeing any of that in Winter Park. And it was about five years into, uh, into it when uh, we had our first failure of a fluoridone treatment. And it was about five years after that when we had our first failure of an endothol treatment. Uh, that's when we started to panic. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I said that I wish I'd never said in my life was that uh, you'll never see grass carp in Winter Park Lake, so stop asking. Yeah. And, uh, and why is that? Why? Why? I mean, when you got there twenty years ago, right. kind of 
you had a bad taste in your mouth of grass carp. Why? Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, it, it's very interesting. Uh, when uh, early on in my career, when there was a hydrilla infestation in a lake, uh, a decision was made to either control it with chemicals or to control it with grass carp. Uh, in order to control it with grass carp, if there was already a significant amount of biomass in the lake, uh, they had to put a lot of fish, I mean, upwards of 20 to 30 fish per acre uh, mm. in order to get that curve of the biomass down to where the fish could keep up with it. Right. The problem was once you put enough fish in a lake that had that much hydrilla in it to actually start to reduce the biomass, you already had too many. And you were going to look at 20 years of no vegetation, no submerged aquatic vegetation, and even uh, grass carp sticking their heads out of the lake to chew on St. Augustine lawns. And uh, <laughs> there was a number of lakes in Central Florida that were in that boat. And what happens to a lake when there's no vegetation? What was what were happening to uh, it? The typical response is uh, a lot of algae growth, uh, planktonic algae, green water, uh, low clarity, uh, just generally conditions that uh, are not attractive to people wanting to use the lake for recreation. Right. Just an anecdotal thing about that. Eufaula uh, had hydrilla pop up several years ago and hydrilla was, uh, hydrilla was the main, uh, I'm sorry. So Eufaula had hydrilla pop up and the, the go-to was grass carp. And after about two or three seasons, I went in there to do a, a plan ID camp with the state of Alabama. And so we went out day one just to try to locate vegetation to show people that were coming to the plant identification camp mm -hmm. and finding vegetation was difficult in and of itself, just because of how the grass carp were stocked. Uh, and it was, it was pretty well void of vegetation for, for a while. I mean, we found some, but it was, it was very, very difficult. And this just goes to what Tim was just talking about. Right. So they were stocking enough grass carp, but if you listen to Tim, which is, I want to make a big point on this is they already had a field full and use an analogy, a field full of hay. And if you want to get all that hay eaten, you had to put this amount of grass carp and that's what they were doing. But when the grass carp, when the hay is all eaten and now you have bare ground, well, what are the grass going to do? Grass carp going to do? They're just going to sit there. I mean, well, they're not letting anything else replace it. So all the native plants are just getting munched before, um, before they right. can, get established so so the grass you had a bad taste in your mouth and you were you were said you never stock a grass carp in the winter park you said no for a long time is that right I, I said no for a long time and i i had to some of my lakes are isolated and could have we could have uh, gotten permits to use carp on them uh, but the chain of lakes the winter park chain of lakes is an open system it's on uh, howell branch creek a tributary of the saint john's river and the protocol for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission uh, would not have allowed us uh, historically to stock that system because we would have no way of, of uh, keeping the carp in one location. Uh, the dual resistance, uh, resistance to two active ingredients that were uh, two of very few tools available to us uh, chemically to treat hydrilla uh, made them take another look at the use of carp in that system. So yeah, you're now you're up against the post because you've been using your one two the only tools that you have, and now the hydrilla is uh, it's resistant to either one of them. So you know now you're up against the wall. And uh, what 
what are you going to do now? I mean, what did you well, say? Uh, we, we relied on a few other active ingredients that were out there, Diquat for one. Uh, there have been uh, some, a lot of movement in bringing new chemicals to the market uh, to use, and some of them have proven very effective, although I think all of them are kind of in the early stages uh, of, uh, of use for hydrilla control. Uh, but one thing that happened that uh, kind of changed everybody's thought processes related to grass carp was the uh, the concept of, and it's kind of funny that you had a lot of smart people working on the same problem for a long time, and it just didn't dawn on them to maybe put the two things together, like the chocolate and the peanut butter commercials yeah. uh, that Reese's used to have. Uh, they went out and treated some lakes uh, with uh, endothol, knocked the biomass down considerably, and then went in with grass carp at a rate of somewhere between one and three fish per acre instead of 20 or 30 fish per acre. This is acre of vegetation, right? Not surface well, acre. This is surface acre. Okay. Okay. Very good. Surface acre of the lake. And uh, the results to me were stunning. Uh, we had... Uh, long-term control of the hydrilla and we had a lot of survival and spreading of native vegetation in the lake. Um, we, as soon as we could get permission from the state to treat the chain uh, that way, and it, it took a while. We had a lot of meetings, a lot of field meetings. We looked at all the work that Winter Park had done over the past five or six years, uh, but we finally got permission to do it. Uh, we were putting fish in some lakes at three quarters of a fish per acre. I think the highest we ever went was about three Clark. and a half fish per acre. And uh, the results have been not, nothing short of amazing. We've had a very low hydrilla coverage and we've been able to react to uh, the, the spread, the increase in hydrilla growth as the carp numbers. That is really cool. The two different ways that you started in your career of stocking this tremendous amount of let's use it as kind of a knockdown tool and then now you're incorporating them as more of a management tool is that am i saying that right like you're you're knocking it down with a herbicide and then the one there then you're there the grass carp or your maintenance crew kind of keeping it down exactly and there's a lot of things that kind of drove that early on is uh chemical treatment meant a continuing program that you were going to have to do over and over again uh, carp meant uh, a long-term treatment uh, process that you, di you did once and you didn't have to worry about for a long time. Uh, a lot of these lakes were paid for, the treatments were paid for by homeowners associations. Uh, their money was a big deal, uh, still is, but we figured out ways to do it more economically. And, and there's a lot more uh, local governments being involved in uh, plant management than there were back in the 70s and 80s. Right. So uh, it it kind of was uh, the necessity drove the the change when when fluoridone was no longer an effective uh, manner of treating hydrilla, and when uh, people did not want to see twenty years of green water, uh, somebody had to come up with a better idea, and uh, this worked. This was the one that was that did it. Yeah, and chemicals is. I mean, you're still using chemicals, right? You never walked away and say one or the other. You're blending the two together and using them. Uh, yeah, and th and it's out of necessity. Uh, I, I've seen some things that I can say uh, qual qualitatively, not quantitatively, that 
make me wish that I didn't have to use grass carp. Uh, I, I, I use them as a necessity uh, to, to keep my job, uh, no, to keep the hydrilla down at a level that uh, keeps the lakes usable. But uh, chemical only treatment has been much less impactive on the environment for me and for our lakes than uh, having to resort to the grass carp. Uh, can you can you just go back and say that one more time for me and for anybody that ever argues with me about herbicidal control? <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll get elaborate. into it talking about harvesters because I have used harvesters in the past, not for hydrilla control, but for other plants. And I hear them being touted on the internet now as a replacement for herbicides, which are the, uh, you know, the big bad uh, player on the block. Uh, harvesters are horribly disruptive to the environment. And uh, I, I use them as little as possible. Uh, grass carp, I, I kind of look at as many harvesters. Uh, they, they, they pull plants out of the bottom. They, they disturb the sediments while they're feeding. They are doing a very good job for us, but on the lakes that have uh, uh, a little more grass carp per acre than others and the, where the aquatic plants uh, that are there are limited to one or two species, my water quality is not as good as on the lakes where I've had uh, the, the native plants uh, stay at a higher diversity level. And that's typically on the lakes that I was able to get hydrilla control with a one fish per acre or three quarters of a fish per acre. So my goal is to eventually get back to herbicide only control. Uh, I don't know if we'll be able to do it with the products that are out there, uh, but we're, we're using everything that comes out and we're, we're keeping an eye on, on how it does and hopefully we'll get there one day. So if yeah. I can just elaborate, Tim is just, I'm talking about in my top 10 people on the planet has just moved to number one. So <laughs> he, so I'm talking about it, it tickling my ears. So here's the gig. So everybody loves to talk about integrated pest management and, and we do too. We love, it. I mean, you need to look at the entire toolbox, but in terms of what you can do with grass carp versus harvesting versus herbicides, you can be extremely selective with herbicides, extremely selective. I can go into a, a stand of pond weeds and milfoil, and I can eliminate the milfoil and leave the pond weeds standing. Not a problem. The problem with harvesters and grass carp is that they're very non-selective. Grass carp are going to eat what they like. They're going to move around. They're going to do what they do. Harvesters are going to go in. They're going to harvest everything that's sitting there. Yeah. Uh, and it is more impactful on the environment. So this argument about herbicides to me is settled science. It, it really is. And this is the argument I use when I stand up in front of people that are naysayers. Um, but what Tim is doing with the grass carp is a very, very obviously great way to utilize them, but they have to be utilized as the tool that Tim is talking about and not just kind of as a coverall, this is what we're going to use. It's got to be integrated into the pest management process. Well, you know, if you want to kind of conclude on this is what I like about Tim, what he's saying is that he's saying the good, the bad, and the ugly of grass carp, you know, um, continue to say absolutely stock too many of them this is what you have you stock them in the right way we had really really good success with diversity but you're gonna have to feel what those are and then with chemicals i can go in there and selectively a little more cut out where i need to do so integratedly that they do a really really and effectively you they do really well and 
And I want you to elaborate on one little thing. How do you know when you need to add more grass carp or you have too many? You uh, go in there and, and, and monitor, right? That, that's a great question. And we do a lot of monitoring. Uh, when we see the frequency of occurrence, it's not necessarily a amount of biomass we're seeing, but just a lot of hydrilla sprigs starting to pop up around the lake that would take uh, uh, excessive amounts of herbicide to treat uh, relative to the biomass of the plants that were there. At that point, we would go back in with uh, about half the original, the initial stocking rate of grass carp, uh, triploid grass carp. And that seems to do the trick. Uh, it's worked very well for us. Uh, a couple of fisheries biologists, I wish I knew who they were at FWC, uh, kind of developed that uh, process uh, by observing trial and error restockings of grass carp and lakes around the state. And it's worked out very well for us. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's important to note. I, I I think in this podcast that's the first time triploid has been mentioned, and we're in most states now. If you're going to stock grass carp, they have to be triploid, which means they are uh, not going to reproduce. There may be one or two states. I think Alabama may still allow uh, may still allow diploids, uh, but most other states they have to be triploids. Right. And triploid, for the first podcast, we actually go into how they make them triploidy and, and what the difference of them are. One's sterile and then and one is not. And most, every place we put them in, they're sterile and a little more biology in the, in the first part one of this three-part podcast. So I think, uh, Tim, man, you did a very good job of explaining what I needed to know about grass carp and your experience with grass carp because you had to. That's what I love about it is that you didn't do it just to evaluate this. You, this is, oh, I'm in trouble. I need to do it, something. And yeah. you kind of were in the jam and, and what you've learned from that and what they eat. Um, I guess one more thing maybe that I would want to pull out of your brain is, is there a selective palate of what grass carp eat? Or when you had so many grass carp, did you ever see what came back, uh, that, you know, after that? that? Too many of them? Did you? Did you I actually saw two lakes that were overstocked with uh, grass carp in the 80s uh, come back, uh, and uh, they both followed the exact same pattern. It was I found it very interesting. But uh, the uh, what was the first part of your question there? Uh, Is it? Do they have a selective palate? Do oh, they? Yeah. Have, are they picky? And they, they they absolutely do. But once they run, once they eat through their favorites, they'll eat everything else that's available. Right, they won't uh, start. Including emergent plants like cattail and and St. Augustine grass. Right. Uh, but I had two lakes, Lake Killarney, uh, it, that we shared with uh, Orange County, and Lake Baldwin that we shared with the city of Orlando. Both were stocked heavily with grass carp at some point before I started working for the city of Winter Park. When I got to Winter Park, neither of those lakes had any submerged aquatic vegetation in them at all uh, that we ever saw. Uh, Lake Killarney started first uh, putting out uh, eelgrass and eelgrass coverage started to spread fairly rapidly over the course of about three years. About the time the coverage got to where it was helping to improve the water quality, the water clarity, uh, we started seeing hydrilla come back in. And the hydrilla, when it came back in, it came back in fast. So we started going after it with sonar. Uh, for a couple of years and keeping it down the way we treated the other lakes. And uh, after a couple of years, Lake Baldwin started to show signs of eelgrass coming back. 
And within two or three years, uh, it had gone the exact same route that Killarney had the eelgrass coverage, got high enough that it was the water quality was getting better. And then the hydrilla was there and it was everywhere all at once. Oh, wow. Interesting. Anything you want to conclude, Troy? No, I, I just love what Tim's saying here. I mean, you know, grass carp are obviously an effective tool in, in, in our science, and they, they've got to be a part of it. Uh, you know, necessity is the father of invention, and, and they had to find a way to control what was causing their issues uh, when they had the fluoridone and the endothel resistance. Uh, luckily, in, in our part of the world, we have not seen that yet. Uh, grass carp are still a utilized tool, but they are, they're specific for certain plants, certain ponds, certain lakes. And that's what Tim's done. And I think it's just a testament to how they're doing things at Winter Park. And uh, they're, uh, they're doing uh, everything they should by the book. It sounds great. Yeah. Uh, Tim, thank you for spending time and sharing your experience. Uh, I love how Troy said, mother of invention. Necessity is the mother of invention because yeah. that's exactly uh, what happened to you. And, and I appreciate you taking the time sit with us and hope to have you back. I enjoyed it. Uh, I had a great time and come back anytime. <laughs> this podcast, Sitting Dockside, is brought to you by Private Water Natural Resource Association, a nonprofit built just to educate private pond and lake owners in water quality and fisheries and all of that good stuff. There's videos there's places to read and there's a community built right into that website so if you want to learn more jump to pwnra.org and click and by all means make sure that this continues in the future podcast education video become a member if nothing else there's tons of platforms youtube facebook just hit like send a comment we appreciate everything you can do here, PWNRA.